BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. From the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library here in the wilds of Connecticut, this is Obscure Season 2 Frankenstein. I am your host, your friend, your literary mansplainer-in-chief and Georgianologist, Michael Ian Black, guiding you as always, up the Swiss Alps into madness. Yes, we are ascending to madness as we travel with Victor Frankenstein, not descending into madness, as is so often the cliche. When last we spoke, I had wrenched my back, which uh, is totally fine now, totally fine. There are no issues remaining with my back as of this moment. Um, surely there will be further pain to come, but right now, fine. And l- uh, last time, the last episode was basically a kind of Disney naturama film of him talking about going, you know, clearing his head, getting out there into the Alps. And frankly, it was boring. And I, you know, I've opened my book here and it looks like the place, it looks like it's going to stay boring. Uh, you know, I, and I'm not reading ahead, but. You know, there's no dialogue, big lengthy blocks of description, probably of nature, and we get it. You know, we get it. I feel like we get it. Victor Frankenstein might be ascending the Alps, but I'm sort of descending back into the morass of antipathy I'm feeling towards this book because I just want hot. Frankenstein on Big Buddy action. And when I don't get that, I get frustrated. You know, I suppose it comes from having some preconceptions of what this book is, right? We're halfway, halfway, maybe more. Yeah, about around halfway into the novel. And the Big Buddy has done has made very few appearances. It's just a kind of apparition at this point. Appearing, disappearing, maybe killing, maybe not killing. And we're left with, you know, Prince Hamlet looking at his feet and wondering what he has wrought. It's, you know, it's a bore. It's a bore. There are moments of enjoyment, sure. Sure. But what are we supposed to do here? I mean, we're committed. Like, if it was just me reading it at this point... I'd probably put it down. I'd be like, you know what, Mary Shelley, I gave you a fair shot and, you know, I'm going to let you go. On the other hand, I might think, well, shit, I'm halfway done. You know, I know Elizabeth is going to die. I know he's going to end up on the edge of the universe. So maybe, you know, maybe it's worth just finishing the thing. Um, But, you know, I'm committed to this project and I, I don't know how many of you are committed to it. You know, I don't know how many of you are like, you know, just continuing to support the podcast because you kind of feel guilty, like I do, that we started this thing and now we have to finish, or how many of you are actually invested in the story? Difficult for me to say and not for me to say. There's no pressure on you to keep listening, you know? No pressure at all. This was always a gamble. Always. Everything's a gamble. 
I lost a gamble last night. I lost a bet, an actual wager on the outcome of the Super Bowl. My daughter, I believe, has the makings of a degenerate gambler. She likes poker, which she has been playing with her friends. Some of her friends do sports betting. I have encouraged her not to do that because I've never known anybody who makes any money doing sports betting with any regularity. And But then last night I was like, you know, the Super Bowl was on and I was, I was looking for an excuse to spend time with my children. And they don't have any interest in football. I don't have any interest in football. But I thought maybe if we made a wager on the game, that would pique their interest. And in fact, it did. So we bet. And to my, uh, you know, surprise and astonishment and delight, they stayed for most of the game. You know, it wasn't a great game. It was lopsided. And I was on the, I was on the losing side of that wager. But we, you know, we hung out and that was nice. So look, never let it be said that gambling doesn't bring people together. It does. It is among the more wholesome family activities you can do. Just gamble on stuff. So my son lost even more than I did because he and, and Ruthie bet a dollar on the outcome of the coin toss. He took tails. It was heads. We each lost an additional $2.50 on the outcome of the game. She took the Tampa Bay Buccaneers straight up, and then we took Kansas City Chiefs. And the outcome of that was not in our favor. So I come to you today a little bit poorer than I was yesterday. And so, you know, if, I, if, if, if my mood tends towards the morose, that's why. I'll continue with the book. He's, so he's been climbing. He's decided he's going he's gonna to climb Montanvert without a guide. He's got a mule, blah, blah, blah. I mean, is he going to see the big buddy up there? Probably. Who cares? The ascent is precipitous, but the path is cut into continual and short windings, which enable you to surmount the perpendicularity of the mountain. It is a scene terrifically desolate. In a thousand spots, the traces of the winter avalanche may be perceived, where trees lie broken and strewed on the ground, some entirely destroyed, others bent, leaning upon the jutting rocks of the mountain or transversely upon other trees. The path, as you ascend higher, is intersected by ravines of snow down which stones continually roll from above. One of them is particularly dangerous as the slightest sound, such as even speaking in a loud voice, produces a concussion of air sufficient to draw destruction upon the head of the speaker. The pines are not tall or luxuriant, but they are somber and add an air of severity to the scene. I looked on the valley beneath. Vast mists were rising from the rivers which ran through it. Oh, he said the river runs through it, like that Brad Pitt movie. Hey, Mary Shelley, you said the river runs through it, like that Brad Pitt movie about fishermen. Vast mists were rising from the rivers which ran through it. I love Brad Pitt and curling in thick wreaths around the opposite mountains. I really do love Brad Pitt. Whose summits were hid in the uniform clouds, 
while rain poured from the dark sky and added to the melancholy impression. I, oh, the melancholy impression I received from the objects around me. Alas, why does man boast of sensibilities superior to those apparent in the brute? It only renders them more necessary beings. And now we have a footnote, all right? So we'll turn to the back. We'll look at footnotes. We, we will enjoy these footnotes. Necessary beings. William Godwin's doctrine of necessity maintained that, quote, in the life of every human being, there is a chain of events generated in the lapse of ages which preceded his birth and going on in regular procession through the whole period of his existence in consequence of which it was impossible for him to act in any instance otherwise than he has acted. So uh, this is a kind of um, fatalism that Godwin is purporting. We're set into motion by forces that preceded us by generations. We have no idea why we're here or what we're doing here. And we act in the only ways that we can act. And there's nothing, there's not a goddamn thing we can do about it. It's another way of stating the butterfly effect. So we, we are not masters of our own fate. And when we try to be, when we strap on those waxy wings and fly too close to the sun, what happens? Kabawi. If our impulses were confined to hunger, thirst, and desire, we might be nearly free. But now we are moved by every wind that blows and a chance word or scene that that word may convey to us. So life itself is like walking up this mountain and anything you say, you know, you speak too loud a voice, you know, an avalanche is going to come down on your head and you fucked. And now, and now we got a poem, which I'm not, you know, ugh. there's a footnote at the end of the poem. Uh, let's see who it's by. Ronsas Vale? Yeah, what is he quoting here? Wait, oh, I'm, I'm in the wrong, I'm on the wrong footnote. Uh, it's the last part of Shelley's Mutability, written in 1816. Come on, I hate when you do this, Mary. You, you know, it just, it just doesn't stop with the anachronisms. You're quoting your own husband's poem? Are you fucking kidding me? Are you fucking kidding me, Mary Shelley? You're quoting your husband's poem from 1816 in a book that, in a story that is allegedly taking place about 50 years before. Fine. So here's, you know, her great husband's work. And I'm, I'll, it's poetry. So, you know, I don't know. Maybe we'll throw some music on. You know, some poetic music to make it more poet-y. We rest. A dream has power to poison sleep. We rise. One wandering thought pollutes the day. We feel, conceive, or reason. Laugh or weep. Embrace fond woe or cast our cares away. It is the same. For, be it joy or sorrow, the path of its departure still is free. Man's yesterday may ne'er be like his morrow. Naught may endure but mutability. Okay, so nothing endures but change. 
which seems to contradict what she was just saying. If our impulses were confined, then we might be nearly free. So I guess she's arguing against uh, fatalism. I mean, certainly her husband is. We rest. A dream has power to poison sleep. Yeah. We rise. One wandering thought pollutes the day. Sure. We feel, conceive, or reason. Yep, we do those things. We laugh or weep. Yep. We embrace fond woe. Yeah, sometimes, you know, you kind of pick at your scabs or cast our cares away. Hey, here's scab. Go away. Psst, and we throw our scabs away. It is the same. For be it joy or sorrow, the path of its departure still is free. You know, it's the same thing. You know, we have choices. You know, you do what you want to do. Hey, kid, you do what you want to do. Man's yesterday may ne'er be like his morrow. You know, just because you did shit yesterday doesn't mean you have to do shit tomorrow. You did one thing yesterday. Hey, man, all right, we, you know, you made a mistake. All right, well, fucking fix it. We'll do, it, do, do something different tomorrow. Naught may endure but mutability. Like, we don't have to do the same thing every day. We can do different shit. We can do all kinds of different shit. Whatever you want to do, we can do. You want to go get a burger? We'll get a burger. You want to get wings? We'll get wings. It was nearly noon when I arrived at the top of the ascent. You, you want to get wings? We'll get wings. We'll get wings. You know what? Let's, you know what? Let's take a break. Let's take a wing break. You know, we'll get some wings. We'll come back. We'll continue on Obscure. We're back. Things are changing. You know, you know, Godwin says, you know, shit happens and there's nothing you can do about it. Shelley says, just because shit happened doesn't mean there's nothing you can do about it. And I don't understand where Mary Shelley falls in on all of, falls on all of this. But, you know, who cares? I'm not dismissing Mary Shelley. I'm just saying, I, I, I'm just saying I'm not going to spend too much time worrying about it right now. Let's see what the story tells us. It was nearly noon when I arrived at the top of the ascent. For some time, I sat upon the rock that overlooks the sea of ice. A mist covered both that and the surrounding mountains. Presently, a breeze dissipated the cloud, and I descended upon the glacier. The surface is very uneven, rising like the waves of a troubled sea, descending low and interspersed by rifts that sink deep. The field of ice is almost a league in width, but I spent nearly two hours in crossing it. The opposite mountain is a bare perpendicular rock. From the side where I now stood, Montanvert was exactly opposite at the distance of a league, and above it rose Mont Blanc in awful majesty. I remained in a recess of the rock, gazing on this wonderful and stupendous scene. The sea, or rather the vast river of ice, wound among its dependent mountains whose aerial summits hung over its recesses. Their icy and glittering peaks shone in the sunlight over the clouds. My heart, which was before sourful, now swelled with something like joy. I exclaimed, wandering spirits, Wandering spirits, if indeed ye wander, and do not rest in your narrow beds, allow me this faint happiness, or take me as your companion away from the joys of life. You know, that's my Christoph Waltz. Um, sometimes he's Vinnie Barbarino, sometimes he's Christoph Waltz, depending on my mood. Mr. Carter, Mr. Carter, 
who's Christoph Waltz? So he's saying, you know, wandering spirits, hey, you know, if you're out there and, you know, you're not busy, would you, would you just let me be happy here for a second? Or, you know, if not, kill me dead. I've been so unhappy, so let me just be happy here for a second. Or if not, you know, just strike me dead where I stand. Well, let's see if they do. Uh-oh. As I said this, I suddenly beheld the figure of a man. It's the big body! At some distance, advancing towards me with superhuman speed. He bounded over the crevices in the ice, among which I had walked with caution. His stature, also, as he approached, seemed to exceed that of man. I was troubled. A mist came over my eyes, and I felt a faintness seize me, but I was quickly restored by the cold gale of the mountains. I perceived, as the shape came nearer, sight tremendous and abhorred, that it was the wretch whom I had created. I trembled with rage and horror, resolving to wait his approach and then close with him in mortal combat. Mortal combat! He approached. His countenance bespoke bitter anguish, combined with disdain and malignity, while its unearthly ugliness rendered it almost too horrible for human eyes. But I scarcely observed this. Rage and hatred had at first deprived me of utterance, and I recovered only to overwhelm him with words expressive of furious detestation and contempt. So now they're face to face, finally. Victor Frankenstein and Big Buddy are face to face. In my head, that's his theme song. Big Buddy, Big Buddy. Um, so they're face to face. The thing has approached as if in waiting. You know, he, if Victor Frankenstein just called out to the wandering spirits, and he here a wandering spirit appears as if summoned. Devil! I exclaimed, "Do you dare approach me? And do you?" And do not you fear the fierce vengeance of my arm wreaked on your miserable head? Begone, begone, vile insect, or rather stay, that I may trample you to dust, and oh that I could, with the extinction of your miserable existence, restore those victims whom you have so diabolically murdered. I expected this reception. <laughs> So he can talk. This said the daemon. So the daemon speaks. All right. I do like them apples. The daemon speaks at long last. And apparently he's quite eloquent. So let's hear what he has to say. I expected this reception, said the daemon. All men hate the wretched. How then must I be hated, who am miserable beyond all living things? Yet you... My creator, detest and spurn me. Thy creature, to whom thou art bound by ties only dissoluble by the annihilation of one of us. You propose to kill me. How dare you sport thus with life? Do your duty towards me, and I will do mine towards you and the rest of mankind. If you will comply with my conditions, I will leave them and you at peace. 
but if you refuse, I will glut the maw of death until it be satiated with the blood of your remaining friends. Well, that sounds like a confession, doesn't it? That pretty much sounds like a confession. Hey, God, you turned your back on me. I turn my back on you. I will make your life as hellish as you have made mine. That is what he is saying. I mean, you know, everybody hates him, right? They look at him, they're like, ew, big buddy, gross. And he, you know, you would feel bad if that were you, right? But then if your own dad is like, oh, big buddy, gross, you'd be like, well, fuck. Like, what? Like, you know, you brought me into this world and now you're rejecting me before you even have a chance to know me. Really just on sight, right? He rejected him just on sight. As soon as the thing, you know, groaned and got up out of bed and, you know, went to, went to the bedchamber, Victor Frankenstein was like, get the hell out of here, you fucking monster. And he did. And he went away. And then, you know, he went into the mountains. He, he you know, he, 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 he was lonely, no doubt. And, uh, and decided, well, fuck it, I'm just going to go on a killing spree. So, all right. So he says, do your duty towards me and I will do mine towards you. Meaning we're like, we're just destined here. We're orbiting each other. We're two black holes. One of us is going to consume the other. And if you comply with my conditions, I'll leave them and you at peace. Okay. So what are the conditions? We'll find out. So Frankenstein says, abhorred monster, fiend that thou art. The tortures of hell are too mild a vengeance for thy crimes, wretched devil. You reproach me with your creation. Come on then, that I may extinguish the spark which I so negligently bestowed. My rage was without bounds. I sprang on him, impelled by all the feelings which can arm one being against the existence of another. He easily eluded me and said, Be calm. I entreat you to hear me before you give vent to your hatred on my devoted head. Have I not suffered enough? that you seek to increase my misery. Life, although it may only be an accumulation of anguish, is dear to me, and I will defend it. Remember, thou hast made me more powerful than thyself. My height is superior to thine, my joints more supple. But I will not be tempted to set myself in opposition to thee. I am thy creature and I will be even mild and docile to my natural lord and king, if thou wilt also perform thy part, the which thou owest me. O Frankenstein, be not equitable to every other, and trample upon me alone, to whom thy justice and even thy clemency and affection is most due. Remember that I am thy creature." I ought to be thy Adam, but I am rather the fallen angel, whom thou drivest from joy for no misdeed. Everywhere I see bliss, from which I alone am irrevocably excluded. I was benevolent and good. Misery made me a fiend. Make me happy, and I shall again be virtuous. Oh, I mean, this is terrible. I mean, it's just so sad, you know? It's just so sad. Okay, Mary Shelley, you got me. You got me, Mary Shelley. You know? He's saying, and Frankenstein has said this same thing of himself. I was benevolent and good. Right? That's what Frankenstein says about himself. And now his 
creature, his fallen angel, his daemon, is saying the same thing. I was benevolent and good. And from the moment I opened my eyes, I have been met with wretchedness and disgust. And it has turned me wretched and disgusting. But I don't want to be that way. Let's go back to P.B. Shelley, right? Uh, the pa- uh, a man's yesterday may ne'er be like his morrow. Naught may endure but mutability. He's saying I'm mutable. My nature was one way. It swung to the other. I want to swing it back if you will allow me. And Frankenstein is saying, no, baby, we can't do it because we're Godwins here. Why does man boast of sensibilities superior to those apparent in the brute? It only renders them more necessary beings. If our impulses were confined to hunger, thirst, and desire, we might be nearly free, but now we are moved by every wind that blows and a chance word or scene that that word may convey to us. Oh, so no, he's saying the same thing. Okay. They're in praise of mutability here. They're saying... Look, it doesn't have to be this way. I know we broke up, baby, but I love you. I love you. Can't we get back together? And Frankenstein, you know, let's see what he says. Frankenstein says, be gone. I will not hear you. There can be no community between you and me. We are enemies. Be gone. Or let us try our strength in a fight in which one must fall. The creature says, how can I move thee? Will no entreaties cause thee to turn a favorable eye upon thy creature, who implores thy goodness and compassion? Believe me, Frankenstein, I was benevolent. My soul glowed with love and humanity. But am I not alone, miserably alone? You, my creator, abhor me. What hope can I gather from your fellow creatures, who owe me nothing. They spurn and hate me. The desert mountains and dreary glaciers are my refuge. I have wandered here many days. The caves of ice, which I only do not fear, are a dwelling to me, and the only one which man does not grudge. These bleak skies I hail, for they are kinder to me than your fellow beings. If the multitude of mankind knew of my existence, they would do as you do and arm themselves for my destruction. Shall I not then hate them who abhor me? I will keep no terms with my enemies. I am miserable, and they shall share my wretchedness. Yet it is in your power to recompense me and deliver them from an evil which it only remains for you to make so great that not only you and your family, but thousands of others shall be swallowed up in the whirlwinds of its rage. Let your compassion be moved and do not disdain me. Listen to my tale. When you have heard that, abandon or commiserate me as you shall judge that I deserve. But hear me. The guilty are allowed by human laws, bloody as they are, to speak in their own defense before they are condemned. Listen to me, Frankenstein. You accuse me of murder, and yet you would, 
with a satisfied conscience, destroy your own creature. O oh, praise the eternal justice of man. Yet I ask you not to spare me. Listen to me. And then, if you can, and if you will, destroy the work of your hands. Why do you call me to remembrance, I rejoined? Circumstances of which I shudder to reflect that I have been the miserable origin and author. Cursed be the day, abhorred devil, in which you first saw light. Cursed, although I curse myself, be the hands that formed you. You have made me wretched beyond expression. You have left me no power to consider whether I am just to you or not. Be gone. Relieve me from the sight of your detested form. Thus I relieve thee, my creator, he said, and placed his hated hands before my eyes, which I flung from me with violence. Thus I take from thee a sight which you abhor. Still, thou canst listen to me and grant me thy compassion. By the virtues that I once possessed, I demand this from you. Hear my tale. It is long and strange, and the temperature of this place is not fitting to your fine sensations. Come to the hut upon the mountain. The sun is yet high in the heavens. Before it ascends to hide itself beyond yon snowy precipices and illuminate another world, you will have heard my story and can decide. On you it rests, whether I quit forever the neighborhood of man and lead a harmless life, or become the scourge of your fellow creatures and the author of your own speedy ruin. As he said this, he led the way across the ice. I followed. My heart was full and I did not answer him, but as I proceeded, I weighed the various arguments that he had used and determined at least to listen to his tale. I was partly urged by curiosity and compassion confirmed my resolution. I had hitherto supposed him to be the murderer of my brother, and I eagerly sought a confirmation or denial of this opinion. For the first time also, I felt what the duties of a creator towards his creature were, and that I ought to render him happy before I complained of his wickedness. These motives urged me to comply with his demand. We crossed the ice, therefore, and ascended the opposite rock. The air was cold, and the rain again began to descend. We entered the hut, the fiend with an air of exultation, I with a heavy heart and depressed spirits. But I consented to listen, and seating myself by the fire, which my odious companion had lighted, he thus began his tale. End of chapter two. Well, once again, Mary Shelley has led us up and down the mountain, has she not? We are taken from, for me, a place of, you know, as I said, antipathy to where I'm now, I'm now invested. You know, I'm now, I want to hear, I want to hear the creature's tale. So now, just structurally, let us relate what, what's, what's going on. The creature is telling the tale to Frankenstein, who is telling the tale to uh, What's-His-Face, who is telling that tale to his sister, Mrs. Saville, and we are reading those letters. 
it's a nesting doll here of stories within stories within stories. Okay, fine. Fine. You know, that's where we are. That's where we shall remain. No problem. But finally, finally, I am excited about where this story is taking me and cannot wait to hear the creature's tale. So we'll do that next time on another optimistic episode of Obscure. But until then, I wish you adieu. Obscure Season 2 Frankenstein is produced by Robin Lynn, Jennifer Brennan, Mary Shimkin, and myself here in the wilds of Connecticut where I record and elsewhere. Original music by Craig Wedgren. If you enjoy this podcast, please go to Apple Podcasts and drop in some stars for us. Why don't you write a kind review? Why don't you? It helps. How does it help? I have no idea, but it makes me feel good. 